I remember walking to Russian archives going, like, the Eta, like, where is it, right? And, and, uh, and they were like, what do you mean? And I'm like, like, where's, uh, where's Hitler's head? And they brought me, they brought me the skull. I don't know if it was, if it really was, but it was at a piece of the couch that had blood on it. I was like, I was like, is this it? They're like, yeah. I'm like, can I hold it? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, that's how crazy it was during the Yalta year. <laughs> you know, that's how that's it was. Welcome to yet another edition of the Crossing Fates podcast, wherein a Christian and a Muslim talk religion and politics. What could possibly go wrong in this scenario? Uh, my name is Matt Hawkins. I'm a former policy director for the Southern Baptist Convention's Public Policy Office. And my friend John Pinna is a man of international intrigue and mystery, um, living, coming to you live from, well, not live if you're listening to this, uh, upstate New York. I'm coming from the Nashville, Tennessee area. And uh, John is a founder of Muslims for Muslims, a, a, a relatively young nonprofit. He could tell you more about that. Um, and uh, we were uh, collaborators from time to time on public policy issues in, during our time in Washington, D.C., uh, a city that we both effectively escaped. <laughs> yeah, I mean, longstanding friends now. I mean, like 15 years now, maybe more. 2009. You were at, well, right? I, wasn't, I wasn't in D.C. till 2010. So, uh, we're, right. but we're working on 13 years, I think. Yes. Yeah, so, so there, I mean, quite a bit. And we, and, then, and we uh, still keep talking to each other for some reason. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, we're both directors at the time. And I was at America's Islamic Congress. You were at the Southern Baptist conference convention convention. convention. So, and, uh, where we just, you know, we brought our, decided to bring our, con our conversations to light, but yeah, it, it took me it took me 10 years to get Muslims for Muslims out there. 10 years. Yeah. I, I, I engaged the entire Ummah, and that was uh, to make sure that <laughs> no one would go to war with me. John, John, are you saying that sometimes intra-faith collaboration is more difficult than multi-faith collaboration or inter-faith collaboration? I think intra-faith intra engagement, this is what my takeaway, right, from from uh, working at, at the American Islamic Congress and and I, we, we didn't found the International Religious Freedom Map Roundtable, but we were founding members, our organizations, and the two of us got involved. It was founded in 2009, and then 2010, we were heavily involved in it. And there was, there's so much intra-faith engagement going on right now. It's, it's healthy. Um, in Davos, Davos, the, there was just the interfaith conference. That's 10 years old. Um, the International Freedom Roundtables, like I said, been around since 2009. There's different forms of that all over the world. And there's, it doesn't just come from, from DC. I helped, I helped put together some of the, the uh, formation of, of the International Religious Freedom Roundtable in Ukraine. This is before the war. And they had already been meeting on a regular basis. Um, one of, the, one of the, uh, the oldest inhabited cities on the planet, Erbil, they've been practicing international religious freedom and multi-faith engagement for thousands of years. Uh, but I think the important component of our involvement has been you know, founded principles of our country in, in religious freedom, and therefore we need to project it and then constantly muddle over what that means domestically. Uh, and so Muslims for Muslims does three things. Um, it focuses mostly about 80% on intra-faith engagement and in engaging the ummah and so which is the global muslim community and it does that by enhancing scholarship i felt that 
there needed to be an avenue or for individuals to, whether it be practitioners, professionals, students, religious scholars as well, but a broad-based, you know, academia and, like I said, practitioners and so forth, to have an avenue to, to conduct research and participate uh, on the idea, the idea of mulling over uh, what's going on in the modern Muslim community. And the second thing was, uh, there's a book called Peshawar Nights. So I'm going to get in trouble by saying it, but there's a book called Peshawar Nights. And <laughs> you've mentioned it in the past. You know, this is so bad. There's a point. There, so there's, there's, there's an ancient tradition of public discourse and debate in, in, in Greek jury style publicly. And so the last time that that had happened that I know of, was in Peshawar in the 1920s, where um, a Sunni and Shia ended up getting into a debate, and they said, "Well, let's let's invoke the traditional style of doing this in public," and they did. And some scribes wrote it all down, and there's a book called Peshawar Nights. And any Muslim who reads it, it starts off with right off the bat, um, "I'm a Sayyid, you know, and I'm a Sayyid," and they basically say a Sayyid is someone who's related to the Prophet, right? Because we have Muslim family, so. And they both go through this lineage of going about the related to the prophet. And it's really kind of funny because any of us will kind of understand how comical that is. Um, not the prophet, but the idea that you're trying to go through all the fathers all the way back. And there's a point where it's like, no, 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 that's through the mother's side. You did this. So, but anyways, they debate uh, Sunni and Shia differences. And it's a friendly debate like you and I um, do on, the, on a regular basis. And they come to essentially no conclusion, but the uh, but they but the, the it's the debate that mattered and the sure. the, the, the the ability to debate well and you know since because I think because of the 50s, 60s, 70s and as uh, you know Wahhabism and I basically call it Wahhabism in both both spheres you know, you know there's there's, <laughs> there's Shia that are 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 extremists. Uh, because extremists in both in both Sunni and Shia camps have taken hold, a lot of people are afraid. Muslims are it's easy to to talk with a Christian about things. It's easy to talk with a Jew about things, but to talk within your own community and advocate yeah. within your own community, it's difficult. I mean, there's a lot of that going on at the micro level, but a but a, a dais of Muslims discussing their differences is rare, and yeah. that's what Muslims for Muslims does. And then the third thing is there was a, that conference in in Jordan and Amman, the conference and the, the the capital, in 2004, and something extraordinary happened. You had uh, the Ummah get together and discuss what is Islam, mainstream Islam, and they said the others might be might might be Muslim, but they're not mainstream. And they agreed on four Sunni and four Shia sects, and then they came up with the, a number of of decisions and. Uh, and decrees, and then they all agreed upon it. And then the miraculous thing is they they all sent out fatwas, the same fatwas. So if you're like a follower of, if you're like, you know, follower of Usmani, right? This, this Sunni guy, right? And and you would, you could, he, it's the same fatwa that Sistani has. And that's, which is a Shia Ayatollah, right? And and so it's an, un, these are unarguable points. And so the problem was that never got operationalized because of the two wars, the wars in the two countries, right? Iraq and Afghanistan. And then uh, we also had the Arab Spring, which we all got kind of backed. And I was heavily involved in, um, maybe the weather is good or bad, I'm not sure. But, uh, and it never got operationalized, but over my time, I really felt like, you know, this is the right path and at least the right path for me. And, uh, 
and it's been very successful these last couple of years. So, you know, we're, we're, uh, and this is a product of it, our, our podcast, but um, that's, that's Muslims for Muslims and you're still doing your PhD. Sorry, I muted myself. If uh, people want to find out more about Muslims for Muslims, where do they go? Uh, it's MuslimsForMuslims.org. It's Muslims with a, well, with a the number four. Right. <laughs> but uh, you could just, you could, you could always Muslims numeral four. Yeah, Muslims. I'm pretty sure that's it. .org. Yeah, and I will put it in the, in the, in the meeting notes, but uh and you well, can good. kind of see some glam shots and what we're doing and what's happening. And uh, and, and the annual report, we're, we're doing a, I'm doing a report right now of the outcomes outputs for the past on uh, on what we've been doing. So that should be released in the next month or so. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, we were uh, largely offline um, for the, uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces um, uh, a couple months ago. Um, so a lot of history, uh, has been in the making a lot of military maneuvers and um, and uh, drama surrounding all of that. Um, but I wanted to ask you because you've been in, in, involved a little bit in uh, Ukraine yeah. policy. So we're going to kind of dive into a little a little foreign policy here for folks. And uh, what we we kind of assuming some level of knowledge that uh, of of our listeners that um, Ukraine is in a war of uh, against the Russian forces. Um, they've held out longer uh, than a lot of people anticipated. Maybe maybe some people um, in the intelligence community might, uh, might feel differently, might have seen uh, the potential for Ukraine to hold out longer. But um, Zelensky, President Zelensky, has uh, been... Um, uh, made worldwide headlines for his leadership of the U Ukraine. Um, not... Um, and remarkably so um, for a lot of different reasons uh, and really has rallied um, the West to aid the Ukraine, maybe not as much as they want or need. Uh, people are going to be dis uh, disagree about that, but we saw they've got land lease, per particularly yeah. $40 billion. Yeah. So we, but we've seen certainly uh, uh, Eastern and Western Europe mobilize in a way that uh, was pretty unheard of um, prior to this moment. But uh what what's been your experience? What are the highlights that uh, Americans um, you think ought to notice? I mean, well, that's a big I mean, everything. Question. Yeah, I mean, everybody, everything I said, everything I said was going to happen is happening. Um, I think uh, Putin is no. There's no mistake. I mean, if you followed Putin and his speeches and he followed his 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 policy, he's always felt that the Ukraine is part of Russia. Maybe to his point, it, it always has been since since uh, about nine eighty eight. Well, well, since the Tartars. I mean, definitely since the Tartars invaded. So uh, since since the Tartar yoke, which is uh, in the twelve hundreds, that's when the Mongols invaded. The Kievan Kievan Rus, the Kievan principalities, the Kievan princes assembled their armies and went out into the steppe, and they took their medicine. They they got they got they got they got massacred, and uh, um, and the center of Russia ceased to be Kiev. Uh, and uh, and it ended up being uh, shifted to Sarai, which is the was the Golden Hordes, the which is the name of the Mongols that controlled Russia. The Golden mm -hmm. Horde, uh, their capital was a place called Sarai, which means paradise, on the northern shores of the Caspian. And then they propped up a puppet government in Moscow, and that's 
um, that's the, the time of the Tartar yoke, what's called the Tartar yoke, um, which is like 300 years where the rise of Moscow and the decline of Kiev, right? And so, and then those, the Moscovite princes rebel, right? And, uh, and then you get Ivan the Terrible is the first who starts the dynastic rule of, of, uh, of uh, Imperial Russia, right? So, so that's a, just a snapshot of like, why in, why would a, a, a neo-Soviet, why would somebody who's, who's, who's born and raised in the Soviet Union, why would he think that, that the Ukraine is part of Russia? Uh, well, because it always has been. Now, the problem is, is that it's an independent state now and has the right to self-determination, right? So, so we, you know, we get into that problem immediately. Um, and, uh, but I think that there's, there's some strong concerns uh, that, that uh, about neutrality and NATO that made or, or pressed the justification for the war, at least what's, what's called a special operation in Russia. Um, and, th and that's what we're calling the invasion, right? So, so uh, when I was talking about these points some time ago, uh, I was January, the last week of January, well, the, week, the whole month of January, uh, I was trying to offer, and I put a bluff document together, a bottom line up front document of how to, what are the core points to stave off war instead of going to war with Russia? Uh, the, what, what are the things that would be a win-win for everyone? And I put together specific bullet points and presented them to the administration, which were turned down. Um, and, uh, and they were turned down for very specific reasons. One is, is that there was a belief that conventional wars in Europe were over. Uh, that's right, straight from the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. Um, um, there, there, you know, there's, there was a, um, there was also the, the, the idea that sanctions would always work, would, 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 the more sanctions we impose and the more we threaten Russia with sanctions, the more that they, they, they'll be reluctant, reluctantly stay, go away from war because they don't want to, they don't want to feel the full import of sanctions, which you can't sanction your way out of war. <laughs> and that's that point has been proven. And that's something that I've been saying. Um, um, and sanctions haven't worked, even though the president right now is still saying, saying the sanctions are going to work. So um, I wonder what I wonder what people in every single Ukrainian city that's either being occupied right now or, or is has been under attack would would like to say about how, whether or not sanctions are valuable. But it was there was these two notions. One is that their conventional wars are over are over two is that sanctions go work and three that somehow there was a sort of general malaise of of uh that that there's enough european or western power poised to pounce on russia if this was gonna if, if he was going to invade and we've seen so far that none of those points are right or have been correct or have been um enough to stave off war let alone stop or slow down the war i don't agree with the media the Western media. I'll just be honest with you. Meaning what? Right. We are so, we get so excited with war because wars are, are in, in the West are over fast. Precision bombing, uh, matter of days or weeks, it's all over with. And then we're involved in redevelopment. And it's just not how the Russians fight. You know, the Russians, what they do is they get, they send in their conscripts, they get you to commit, engage, they get you to commit forces. And then they start to slow grind and then encircle you and then just annihilate you. 
Right? So, and that's like, that's not a profound statement. It, it, it might seem profound, but I mentioned it in January and it's happening now, but it's not a profound statement because you can go back to how the Russians fight wars, right? But all the way back to World War II. So, uh, and, and even farther, you can go back, but World War II, their whole strategy is they lost 18 million people in World War II. Okay, let's just, the Allies total 535,000, 18 million, right? Because they took the four full import of the German war machine, right? Operation Barbarossa, June 22nd, 1941, when the, the uh, uh, when, when the Germans invaded 185 divisions, they upped it to 240 divisions. So 1.5 million people, uh, men were fighting on the Eastern front on the German side. And their military was like, it's from another, another planet at that time. They don't believe in Blitzkrieg, the, the Russians. They don't believe in any of that stuff. They just believe in getting you to engage, getting you to commit your forces. Once they know where you are, they encircle you and they just grind you down. And that's what's happening right now. The East is more or less lost. Uh, there's a pocket with 17,000 uh, Ukrainian forces and they are essentially getting annihilated. Um, cities are falling and the Russians, you know, that's, that's, they're, they're not, I always tell, say it like this. I said, they're not the most effective military in the world. They're not the most professional military in the world. They don't even get the most victories, but they are the most destructive force on the planet. Once they engage you, it, they just want to inflict as much damage, civilian damage, infrastructure damage, you know, that simple. They just want to destroy as much infrastructure as possible, and they will just keep grinding. And, and eventually, it's like, what are we fighting for? You know, that, that's, that's essentially what happens. And we use that to our advantage as Americans. We used it in World War II. We, we had them, we wouldn't open up uh, when after Operation Barbarossa commenced and in the fall, so it's June 22nd, by the time it hit September, Stalin was asking for uh, anti-aircraft guns, petrol, and a second front. He got Lend-Lease and uh, he didn't get a second front for another three and a half, four years. And the Russians did, they just ground the Germans down the German machine down to nothing. Um, you know, we, we talk about Patton and uh, Patton and Patton uh, being this great general. Well, I think our greatest general is Ulysses S. Grant. I think he was our greatest general. Uh, but Patton was defeat was fighting a defeated army. Those were like cobbled. All the armies he fought were cobbled together from Eastern Front units and divisions, and they weren't fresh. Mm -hmm. uh, fully equipped arm, you know, uh, uh, divisions. They weren't very equipped army groups. Um, they were just cobbled together. So they're already a defeated foe, you know? So the, the challenge is, is you have the Russians, once they engage, they just start this, this grind. And what ends up happening is, is they just have to inflict as m more, just as much damage as possible before you start to think about capitulating. Like, what is this all worth? Now, why did Russia do it? Um, why is Russia there? Well, we talked about this Kiev and Rus. We talked about this transfer of power to Muscovite Russia. And there is a long history of that that's active in, yeah. in the Russian mindset, particularly Putin. So that's one. Two, Reagan, there is the, you know, stock, well documented that Reagan and Gorbachev said not one inch to the east with NATO. NATO was formed to counter Soviet expansion. There is no Soviet Union. And it's been expansion, state has been expansion, expanding uh, east ever since. And Russia really likes buffer zones. 
Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, didn't, I really didn't want, didn't really like the eastward movement of. Uh, right. You know, and I, I liken it to Cuban Missile Crisis. You don't want missiles parked in your backyard. You don't want the enemy or the potential enemy so close that you can't respond. And the Russians were caught by Operation Barbarossa, but they're, you know, with their pants down largely, you know, and so they, and it embroiled them in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a world war. I kind of get it, the buffer zone. Um, and, uh, but, and I don't see any, I just didn't see any harm in entertaining really discussion talking points. And I think it was a part of our government's responsibility, particularly um, the State Department and uh, uh, Secretary Blinken and, and, and Jake Sullivan, who Jake Sullivan is just like the most one-dimensional thinker on the planet right now. Um, I, I just can't, I didn't understand how this guy has a job. Um, but uh, I mean, he, apparently he's, he's, a, he's our national security advisor and I can only figure out that he's, sat in meetings and he's been involved in two political campaigns, but so I can't figure out what he, how he's qualified um, to be in the post that he's at. But um, when presented with an opportunity to at least float negotiation points to the Russians, turn them down. And here's, here's what those, what those talking points were. A five-year moratorium on the expansion on any admittance to NATO. This is now in January. Just put a moratorium and that carries over into the next presidency. So Putin doesn't get nervous if there's a regime change, right, from Biden to somebody else. So it's five year moratorium because it, the original the original uh, formation or the, the original ethos of NATO was what was to stop Soviet expansion. Well, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. And there's a mutual defense pact. Right. What, what, what's what's the point of forming this? This what's the point of this entity? And there is a point of mutual defense pact, but here's well, the problem. Now, now we know. <laughs> for, well, but here's the, the problem: in the case of Ukraine, Ukraine is not part of NATO. But I know, but we can we can now part. see right. We can now see why they'd want to be part of NATO. <laughs> I don't disagree with you on that. I, I mean, like, you know, so it sounds like I'm advocating for the Russians, but we're. But the problem is, is that Ukrainians are dying right now, and mm-hmm. and I think it's important for people to know the administration had talking points. That, that, to, that to avoid or stave off war, that they didn't even float to the Russians. They didn't even float to, to Putin. So one is a five-year moratorium. How great would that be? You just did a five-year moratorium on any admittance. They're, they're, they're really hokey about admitting people to NATO. You wouldn't know from Finland and now in Sweden. But this was something that was really, really hokey. But this is why Turkey is being is saying, well, what are the points? What, how, are, how does Sweden and Finland, how do they meet the criteria for NATO? If we didn't meet the criteria for years and years and years, yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, it's a fair point that Erdogan is saying, because, you know, they're strategically located. They essentially all have U.S. equipment um, and U.S. training that uh, to uh, the Turks. And and so he's saying, well, what, what's the problem? Why can't why couldn't you admit us? But now you're fast tracking people just because they want to. And his question is really fair. He's saying is because they're not. Is, is it because we're Muslim and they're not? Is it because, you know. He's going through all these, you know, we're Turkic peoples and you're, so he said, he's trying, he's actually floating all these things, but this is what they had the last week of January moratorium for five years, green light, the Gazprom pipelines pipeline into, into, into Europe, into Germany. And, and, and so the, the LNG starts to flow, Russians get their money, work on a five-year agreement for that five-year agreement for uh, Russian petrol to open up Russian petrol to the West. And therefore, 
lowering the cost of, of petrol globally and offsetting because they're not part of OPEC. Offset, and that OPEC has to follow suit and lower gas prices. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to think what were the other points that we talked about. Um, stabilize the, the occupied areas, the Donbass and Crimea, and, and, and actually form a, a, a negotiation group to, um, to parlay on what, it, what these two areas mean in the Ukraine and what are the claims to figure out what, what does self-determination mean? Is it the entire Ukraine? Because the problem is if the Donbass wants to declare its independence, then for example, then how do you, how do you address those issues of declaring independence with ethnic Russians, for example, in, in, in the context of a country that's relatively new that is claiming its own self-determination? And I think that these are things that, you know, a bunch of nerds could have handled you know, mm-hmm. but sure. not the idea that that the idea that there was there was um, that, that sanctions were going to stave off war that that uh, that there wasn't going to be the conventional wars over and stuff like that. It's all it's all it's all it was all speculative nonsense. We're finding out that that nonsense is yeah. tr- it was 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 ended up coming to be the, ended up being complete nonsense and then from there these are all assertions from the national security advisor that are that were public so yeah. Is it, um, so it's your it's your sense that uh even even though a lot many people in the media and a lot of a lot of americans look at ukraine and think wow this is like they didn't get washed over in in the first 72 hours they're hanging out like they're surviving they need a little support your your sense is that well that may Yes, in fact, but in the long term, that might not uh, actually help the Ukraine's uh, the Ukrainians win because you're saying this is kind of how Russia fights its wars anyway. So they it's fight, and the Russian and kind the, of long term grind. Yeah. Uh, but the Ukrainians are going to run out of dudes. They're going to run out of dudes. It's as simple as that, you know. And this is look at the look at the loss of equipment and loss of personnel in World War II in all of their wars. It's not really a concern. I mean, it is. And to us, it's even, it's a much more concern. That doesn't mean they devalue the, their, their individual fighters and their equipment and their budgets, but they generally fight this way where they're like, losing equipment's part of the deal. Losing people are part of the deal. You know, like they, they yeah. accept casualties very differently than we do. Um, but here's the other casualties thing. than that. Yeah. They have a high, higher threshold of casualties than... Uh, then would affect the West as far as decisions. But here's the thing: is there was precedent here. The Russians occupied Austria right after World War II, and that was too close for our comfort. Way too close for our comfort. So one of the talking points that I floated, in addition to the ones I just spoke about, was that let's just declare the Ukraine neutral. And because there's precedent, the Russians pulled out of. Austria and Austria was declared a neutral state in 1955. Okay, so there's precedent in the Cold War of this actually happening. Hmm. So, and this is the problem, you know, if you don't put people in situations in context, you know, Jake Sullivan, one dimension. So the problem is, is that you have this, this, this precedent here that no one knows about. You have, I think, pretty valuable talking points. You're going to help the Russian economy. You're going to keep the LNG flowing. You're going to lower global gas prices. I mean, we're all, t- I just, I just, it was over a hundred dollars to fill up the Jeep today. Nope. We lost your video. At least. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know. Okay, what, um, 
And so I think that, I think that, uh, I think that there's um, nothing, nothing crazy is happening. So I don't know. Um, so I think that the problem is there's was, there was key talking points to keep gas prices low, which is important to us, right? And so we're not going through anything that the, Uk- the Ukrainian people are, do- are going through. But the problem is, is the ga- our wallets are all getting killed by these gas prices. And that is affecting us, uh, the, the American economy and the American households dramatically. And that, and there was a way to, to completely address this in a, in a manner in which the Russians went in and we would win. But here's the other thing. So we never were, was able when I was, when I, whenever I did any work anywhere in the world and, and, and people would, uh, and particularly what I, I always cite this example, when I was in Afghanistan, I would go to all the provincial councils. This is 2012 with the Department of State doing all these, when the PRTs the provincial reconstruction teams, USAID and the provincial councils where I stalemate, they'd send me in and I negotiate deals. Right. And so I remember being in, in, in Jalalabad at the provincial council building, we were chatting with everybody and they wanted a bridge. And they were like so mad at the provincial governor for not providing the bridge. And I said, well, here's the thing. I don't think you're going to get the bridge. But what are the things, other things you need that are easy asks? And where if the provincial government, the governor, the governor doesn't provide it for you, he kind of looks like a jerk. And the thing is, is that this serves a couple purposes. One is he'll gray in these small things because if he doesn't, he looks like a jerk and it's easy for him to do and he looks good. Two is that you start to build a working relationship with the person, right? But we never got into, to, and so we started doing that and eventually they got the bridge, right? But it took a year, a year and a half, 18 months for them to do it. The challenge here is that we never called Putin out and said, all right, we'll declare, what, what, what if we do declare it neutral? What if we do put a moratorium on the expansion of, of uh, NATO? What, what are you gonna do then? Right. Instead, he had we're going to get sanctioned. We're going to sanction you. And and he really had nowhere to go. There wasn't any he didn't know how far the U.S. was going to go. But he certainly knew that they couldn't project force into that region without a lot of difficulty. So. But here's the thing on the Putin side, it's kind of even if he didn't invade or even if the invasion didn't last long, it's like it's a stroke of internal politics. It's it's genius from an internal political standpoint. Because essentially, he's been in power for so long, he doesn't know where the dissidents are. But the second he did this, all these protesters came out of the woodwork and they all got arrested. And it's, you know, it, it, you know for somebody who studied Russian history, it's all about, you know, getting, you know, finding counter-revolutionaries and, and you know, executing them. So that's, it's, it's, it was like a dream for him. And that internal, the internal element or aspect to this is something that's profound for him, for Putin to maintain power. So if you're, if there's a population out there of dissidents, he's actually been able to clobber them with this, uh, this whole activity. Um, he's also been able to draw a line in the sand to see how, where America is gonna go, how far we're gonna go and where the West is and really who the allies are and who his enemies are. It's like, it's no surprise that the Finns uh, are against the Russians. They've, they've hated the Russians for a long time. Um, there's no surprise the Swedes, the Swedes, you know, the bad, bad boy of Europe in, in the 20th century was Germany, right? In the, in the, in the 19th century, it was the French, but, um, in the 18th century, it was the Swedes, the great Northern war, uh, you know, Chuck there, there, Charles, the 12th, I think the guy was, 
he invaded the Low Countries and Latvia, Lithuania, Lithuania, Estonia, and then Russia, and he tangled with Peter the Great in 1725. You know, so and got himself exiled for five years in. It's an amazing story. He couldn't leave from the front, so he, he broke his leg or his arm. I can't remember. And he was ex, and so his in he in the Battle of Poltava, he lost lost the war, lost lost the battle, and he was exiled in Turkey for five years. He was living in Turkey five years, then made his way back to Sweden, raised up an army, you know, Lutherans, because you know Lutherans don't care about their well-being, and uh, and then went like a Lutheran army is the most is is they're one of the most effective armies on the planet and uh went back into Russia fought Peter the Great won and ensued for peace and then they've been at peace ever since so it's no you know, the Swedes and the Finns going to NATO is no big surprise so I mean I'm saying all this stuff because it's very frustrating and the, so because I did a I, I worked for the work with the Department of State on revamping the conflict monitoring it's 2016 to 2020 uh 2019 for three years and that's where the hat's from you know I don't know if you can see it. And, and you know, I get that in one place. And so the, the problem is, is that there was no discussion in 2016 and onward about floating a diplomatic deal. It was all about conflict monitoring. And when, you know, you asked the diplomatic personnel, you know, Ambassador Volkner and all these guys, they were like, no, there's, you know, we're just going to stabilize the region. It's just going to be fine. We're just going to do conflict monitoring. And it's little moves. It's like a chess game. And I, I said, well, you know, there's the problem is, is that the Russians see the Ukraine as part of Russia. Um, and and so and there's a lot of value there. right? So there's a lot of that LNG, a lot of natural yeah. gas. Yeah. I mean, you control Crimea, you control 70 percent of the of the of the fuel in the in the in the in the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's just a fact. Uh, and and then if you control the east, there's a there's a substantial amount of resources there. So you know, the problem is, is like there's the, the resources are too valuable. Uh, to, it's, it's too valuable of an entity from a cultural, socio-political and economic standpoint to not float diplomatic, uh, some kind of some kind of diplomatic uh, talking points to say, how are we going to deal with this issue? We don't want it to go to war. And it's a failure on our diplomatic work, um, you know, and so that's that that's I think I'm, I'm very disappointed because of my involvement in all this that that it's you know first of all that ukrainians are dying uh yeah. and 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 these cities these beautiful cities maripol being destroyed um and it, it, you know the the idea that you can sanction your way out of the war is ridiculous yeah. when the russians have a phd in sanctions right from from 70 years of soviet rule i mean sanctions may be a worthwhile part of a a broader grand uh, uh war strategy Right, but it's not yeah, but sanctions, never sanctions on their own do not stop no. war fighting. It's ridiculous, and 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 they have an asset that they didn't have in the, during the Soviet Union. What's the asset? China. China can run everything through the you know HSBC banks and everything else. So they have assets that they didn't have before, and now you see their out the allies of Belarus and these guys are 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 poised and ready to pounce. And so the problem is, is like you're splitting the country in half now. And then none of this had to happen. And there's all these nerds running the show with this administration. And like I said, I've served administration since Clinton. So, you know, you could say I'm the left or I'm right or whatever the hell you want to say. But the bottom line is, is that in this particular administration, I'm hard on all the administrations. This one, it's really close to home because the time spent there and my, my, you know, I went to school for Russian history, Asian European history and minor in Russian. I, 
During the Yeltsin years, I worked at the FDR library as an archivist. And guess wow. what I did? I went to Russia into, to school at the Pushkin Institute. And then I interned in Russian archives. That would never happen. <laughs> you know, I remember walking to Russian archives going like, it'd be at the, like, where is it? Right. And, and, uh, and they were like, what do you mean? And I'm like, like, where's, uh, where's Hitler's head? And they brought me, they brought me the skull. I don't know if it was, if it really was, but it was at a piece of the couch that had blood on it. I was like, I was like, is this it? They're like, yeah. I'm like, can I hold it? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, that's how crazy it was during the Yeltsin years. You know, that's how nuts it was. Now all my schoolmates are, are, you know, working for the government or, or this, that, or in the UK. And then even one of my buddies is an oligarch. Right. So, um, so it's really kind of, it's just, it's so disappointing that that you have individuals that are that don't take great care to stave off war particularly with the russians not that we got to be so scared of the russians but the bottom line is is like they're a former ally they're not soviets anymore they might be neo-soviets but that's all wrapped up in their identity of xenophobia and everything else but here's the beauty of it is that is that if you there's you if you present something if you if you present something like a moratorium on admission admittance to NATO for five years that carries over into the next administration, what would have Putin said? We don't know, but he might have said, "You want to know what? That's reasonable. Neutrality, reasonable. You're going to open the Gazprom pipe, the Gazprom pipeline. You're going to green light that. Great, and you're going to your American companies." American companies, JV, they do joint ventures with 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 uh, Russian companies like Luck Oil and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. and that's how they get around sanctions and stuff. But but imagine greenlighting these companies to just purchase the petrol, and 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 then lowering petrol prices because they're not part of OPEC, which is stuff we've done in the past. All that stuff would been would have been it would have been ludicrous for Putin, and he would have looked really really stupid if he didn't if he didn't say yes to such things. But it wasn't even offered to him, and now. You know what are we going to do? We're we we we're we're embroiled in this this aid package to um to the Ukraine. The Ukrainians are no angels. Um, they do have Nazi divisions and uh, of of personnel because they're during the last prior to the war there there were uh, desert they were deserting their units were deserting in in large numbers and so these these. Uh, paramilitary Nazi groups were being more integrated into their service. Um, and there's been a lot of corruption. A lot of money has fallen on the floor. I mean, it's so much so they have their own Wikipedia page, you know, of, of, of like Ukrainian corruption that's prior to the war. All right. It's not a sure. propaganda thing. Yeah, so, sure. well, I mean, Yulia, their ex-president and their, and their minister, I mean, she, she got nailed and she got deposed for stealing $600 million. You know, so challenges is that is that why wouldn't we again? Why wouldn't we offer? Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we put together a package to stave off war when we could have? And now, what do we do? We got all kinds of Ukrainian refugees. These beautiful cities destroyed, uh, and yeah, our and economy. Would, yeah, what's and, that? And you would have you basically you would have liked to have seen some more creative uh, diplomacy on the front end over the class over the last few years not it's not just about a matter of this year because once the conflict starts then you're you're uh, over the option uh, options are really really limited well and and that's and i'm i'm lucky that i have access to most administrations right and i'm lucky to be able to have 
you know, negotiate and, and, and provide value to the American people from my perspective um, for our national security and, and international development. But in this case, it's so frustrating when, first of all, to hear, no, Putin won't invade, the sanctions are gonna work. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I said, well, what happens when, if they don't? What happens when they don't? And, 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 I, and I was you know, sort of patronized out of the conversation. I was actually kicked off two calls. It was like, well, you know, if you don't have anything else to say, if you're, you're not going to be part of the, <laughs> uh, you know, that could be a consensus here. You're out of the meeting. <laughs> uh oh, what are we doing? Daughter came in. She was, uh, she'd been coloring for about the best hour, so uh, she was asking for a break from coloring, uh, which is fine. <laughs> she, can, she, can, she can get a little screen done now yeah so i mean i know i'm it's i ramble a little bit but it's because i'm frustrated dude it's yeah there's there's why wouldn't you exhaust every option and then have a viable at least buy yourself some time and then on top of that have some some sort of viable response that doesn't if if in fact this putin does what it was Give them the chance to respond and give them the chance to do the right thing. But you back them in a corner. You basically say, well, there's no if you get sanctions. Sanctions aren't, aren't, aren't really a, a consequence to me. So I might as well invade and see what's going on. And I don't think people realize that Putin's at the end of his reign. Okay. He's been he's been there for you know 20 some odd years. He's got, um, he's going to be the president till 19, till 20, 2035. That's if he doesn't have cancer. That's if he doesn't, but here's the thing. He's like, at the, he's at the end of his, he's at the end of his reign. So but does he think that? I think he knows that. I think, he, I think he, you know, here's the thing is he's been ruling for so long. Eventually, you know, you're, this is now the time. I think he says, this is the end of his reign. And he goes, or he's, and he might get another five years. Maybe, maybe he'll get another 10 years. Who knows? But he, it's the last 10 years of the last five years. So why not? Why not? Why not just, why not just go after the Ukraine? It's been a policy point and it's been something that I've wanted to do for a long time. He's made no bones about it. I think that I disagree. I heard a, I heard a government, I heard a government affair, an American diplomat say, well, Stalin and and Lenin have chapters in the Russian in Russian history books, and and Putin wants his. I think Putin already has a chapter. Uh, I'm not sure that this is what he needed to have a chapter, but I do think that come come hell or high water, it's it's a it's a really great historical move and show of force uh, and confidence in the idea of. You know, loose the Russian, you know, identity, and uh, and trying to restore or implement a some kind of Russian identity, um, and from the past, my father would say, father would he he would say he says, oh, it's it's old thinking. Putin's old thinking. He wants to restore the Soviet Union. I go, that might be true, but sanctioning your way out of war is old thinking too, you know. NATO yeah, is sure. in looking at NATO from the standpoint of let's just keep expanding exponentially and, and it's going to be a consequence free environment is no, 
that they want to establish a NATO in um, the U.S. wants to establish NATO in the Gulf states, in the Gulf region. Well, what is that going to do? Iran is going to get is you know and so and the Gulf states are going to freak out. So, what's the point of doing it? What's the reasoning for for doing this? Well, you know, just to keep expanding mutual defense pact. When I spoke to one of my high the high ranking army boys, he goes, "Well, it's got to be the predecessor to Starfleet Command." It's like the entire planet. That's how he said explained it to me. And I thought it was, it was kind of in a profound thing because, you know, sooner or later the entire planet will be NATO. And then we, everyone will be, a, a, you know, in agreement with core Western values, which he, he, he disagrees with me. And I agree, I, I shouldn't say we disagree, but I agree that part of NATO is, is a combine of Western values that is expanded and spread through the alliance. But sure. But uh, he said it'll be shared Western values across the globe and a shared defense pact so that when we go and we start murdering aliens, we all are on the same page. <laughs> so, was, you know, he's a tank commander, you know, so, you know, he, he's already murdering aliens. He's already 100 years down the road, you know. So as I love, I love, you know, he's he's like this war. Oh, this isn't a war. When with the aliens, when we're fighting the aliens, you know, and uh, he's, he's he goes, I'm just so disappointed with the Mars rover. He goes. He goes, we can't even run over one alien. There's none of them. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't, he's like, I don't know the capabilities of the rover. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it is disappointing that there's not a lot of action up there. So anyways, um, you know, we, we wanted to chat a little bit about it. I mean, yeah. yep, so the that's, other thing. That's, a, that's pretty enlightening. Uh, is it? I mean, I don't yeah, know. It's, it's helpful. I, well, I mean, it's, it's certainly a, even if it's a minority take, like it's a, you know, it's an interesting uh, I think you bring an interesting perspective that uh, hasn't necessarily been echoed a lot um, in most of our mainstream media and maybe probably even the kind of the more nerdy uh, podcasts and blogs that, that we would follow uh, re reporting on these kinds of situations. Why would you, why the di dignity of human person, right? What we, we see eye to eye on that. Why would you, why would you jeopardize Ukrainian lives or, or Russian lives, any lives? by not putting together the best package to stave off war. You know, is it was there is there a possibility or was there a possibility of Putin saying, you wanna know what, this is good, you know, all this economic value to my country, uh, well, let's, we'll spend a couple, we'll spend, a, you know, this, I'm gonna get five years out of you guys. Would, you know, he would have come back, he would have looked, looked like a hero. You know, this whole Nazi thing, you know, I, I, I can't I can't speak to it. Um, I spoke with a Russian friend of mine. I go, I know there's the Azov Battalion. I know there's Nazis there. How many Nazis? I couldn't tell you. You know, and that's the problem. Um, I know they were pretty passionate World War II, the Ukrainians. The Einsatzgruppen would didn't even need to send in troops. They just need to send in commanders because the, the Ukrainians were participating in the final solution willingly. Um, are there descendants forming militias and and so forth, they they are. There's proof of that. How many? I don't know. The problem is, is that that's an aspect that the Russians are very, very passionate about. They don't like Nazis, yeah, in any shape and form. They killed 18 million of their own other people. So if there are Nazis close to their borders that are well armed, that's an issue. Um, yeah. on, and on top of on top of the rich. Um the rich uh, natural resources and 
the uh, the history of Ukraine being part of Russia, right? I mean, yeah, Putin, Putin does seem to have this uh, this perspective of um, once Russian, always Russian, right? I mean, yeah, you know, there's no difference, they say. And I'm like, okay, you know, I mean, I get it. We have our own, we have the Monroe Doctrine. I get it. I know what the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine says. Does it, does Russia have its own right to the Monroe, to, to the Russian version of the Monroe Doctrine that they need to control their sphere of influence? Possibly, but then, they, <laughs> but it's a Pandora's box. I mean, China has the one China uh, that their Monroe Doctrine, which is the one China concept, right? And it says anything that's touching China or was part of China needs to be repatriated. And that's what Tibet was all about and the Dalai Lama. So, you know, it, it's, it's a troublesome mindset to have. And is it old thinking? Yes. But it doesn't matter because we're right, we're, we're smack down at ground zero with this. So, you know, what do you do? So, I don't know. I mean, I just read this headline about Taiwan and the, the Chinese are going to invade because they've been encouraged by Russia. And I just came back from lunch with somebody about this. And I, and uh, we were chatting back and forth. I go, well, you know, the Chinese were allies in World War II, you know? And, um, and so it's troublesome because they had the cultural revolution and Shanghai Shack decides to not win and we're backing him. So he goes to Taiwan, we back Taiwan. And now it's been a problem and, and, you know, a thorn in the side of China for all these years. And I go to my, I was trying to figure out, I go, well, if we had a civil war and we did, and, uh, and you had, you know, General Lee and, and they lost, right? The South lost, but you had, if you had General Lee and uh, uh, what was that guy's name? Who was, who was the head of the Confederacy? What was his name? Oh, what was that? Um, do we know? Do you remember him? It's on the tip I'm of my tongue. Like, yeah. Um, what was his name? Jefferson Davis. I want to. I wanted to say Jefferson, I, but it wasn't. Yeah, Jefferson it's Jefferson Davis, Davis yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So if Jefferson Davis, imagine if Jefferson Davis went to Cuba, and they and and like had like the Confederate States of the South in Cuba, ninety miles away, we wouldn't tolerate that. So we have Japan. So I'm not saying that the Taiwanese we're not, we shouldn't protect them, but I can I have I have the strange ability to see to sit in like a China in the Chinese shoes and say I, I wouldn't want that I wouldn't want the, my, the Civil War a reminder of the Civil War to be right there I wouldn't want Jefferson Davis there and that's a reminder of them the Shanghai Shack and all that business that happened during mm -hmm. the Cultural Revolution Yeah, that's and, a good point. You know, so what, do you, what, you know, where do we, where do we stand? Like, how do you arbitrate on these issues? You know, so what do you think? Well, where are the evangelicals? Big, What's the evangelical stance? Too, too big a question for, for given our time I, limit today now. <laughs> um, but that's a, it's a helpful, helpful perspective to uh, bring in. Look, uh, you, I mean, if you're going to engage in diplomacy, you do have to enter into the shoes of uh, your opposition and figure out what might be appealing to them in any given situation uh, that might um, attract them to not going to war, right? And right. Uh, I think you, you have to be able to think think in those terms um, when well in advance, right, of when uh, missiles start flying and takes, tanks start rolling. Um, hey, we lost years. And then on top of that, when we knew they were going to invade, we didn't do, we did not even talk to them. We didn't even talk to them. Imagine that. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, the, the fact that so much, so much of this was uh, anticipated and, uh, and predicted, um, even by U.S. intelligence, um, that Russia was interested in moving, and nobody really took, took that call seriously, um, is a pretty big problem. Yeah, I mean, I, here's the thing. Does it serve the strategic interests of our country? Maybe, maybe it does. Um, if we, you know, the, the, the gas prices are high, all the flour is being sold to, to Europe because they're paying top dollar. So the price of flour has gone through the roof um, and a number of other resources. But how is this, I mean, it consolidates NATO. It brings in more members, you know, which increases the defense capability. Sure. You know, the Republic is, is stronger. We're not weaker because of this. Uh, and we're getting a, a ton of, a ton of Intel because the Ukrainians are engaging heavily and we have uh, a number of uh, soft forces, you know, SOCOM in country playing around. And so we are getting an idea of Russian capabilities, but I don't think that, I just don't think there's any guesswork on what the Russian capabilities were. I, I don't, any Russian historian or Russian military historian worth their salt knows how the Russians fight. And they, it's, it's just, it's very, very methodical, you know, yeah. personnel equipment cost is over here and they take that and they put it in a shoebox and they put it underneath their bed and they yeah. say, engage, grind, encircle, annihilate, engage, yeah. grind, encircle, annihilate. Yeah. You know, kind of like well, with you in the conversation with me and Paul, you know, it's, <laughs> that's right. You did that the last conversation. You're gonna, you're gonna wear me down. We, that's right. With Paul, you and me both. We like to bait each other with Paul, yeah. and then we encircle, and then we drive and grind the other down. That's pretty funny. <laughs> well, I think you know. It, to sum it up, on the context of um, potential errors of um, errors of Western diplomacy, and I'm not I'm not the diplomatic expert here, um, but it does seem to be that uh, when when we do make errors as a, doing diplomacy as the West, we tend to make the error of projection, meaning um, we, we, we project onto the opposition, like the Russians, uh, how we would think about uh, war and what would, um, what would discourage us from going to war, what would incentivize us from not going to war. Um, and if we, we think things like uh, traditional ground wars don't happen in Europe anymore, then that puts us in a particular category. And um, the, we, we just kind of project our own incentive structures onto um, countries and leaders of, say, Russia and China, and they're just thinking through a completely different grid uh, oftentimes than American diplomats, and that seems to be a source of uh, frequent mistakes. I mean, I, I, we, we end up being, um, I told you some of the comments that were made by, what, the fourth most powerful person on the planet, you know? Um, the security advisor, and, and I just, I was like, it's. I, I came out of this meeting going, is, you, is, am I, is there, is there a camera? Is this like a joke? Like, like, how can you say conventional wars are over in Europe? Who says that? Who says that? All Europeans hate each other. They all hate each other, one way or another. <laughs> the Italians hate the French, the Germans, everybody. They all hate each other. If they had, if they had their druthers, they would reestablish whatever strange monarchies they would have, and then they'd start rolling on each other. Yeah. I mean, the good, the the top line, the top line argument for NATO is that you you do have a an, a, a federation of 
European countries who aren't trying to invade each other, which was well, a problem they, for hundreds and hundreds of years. They lose their strategic ability. They can't project force. They just have a tactical ability, the ability to defend themselves. So that's, that's one of the components of the Marshall Plan. And that's one of the components of NATO is that they, there's, they can't do anything. And that's where the Trump administration was really strange about it because they were talking about money. But if, if we control the money, right? If we control the funding, then they can't fund their own militaries, right? So we can always pull back funding and then they don't have petrol. They don't have, uh, they can't pay for the logistics and the ability to project force. And they can't have to rely on our military to help them, our bases and so forth, right? So, you know, there's a reason for all this stuff um, to be in place. And, you know, my, um, my, my friends, you know, like my friend makes a good point about the start, the uh, enterprise, you know, what is it called? What is it called? I, I, the, the, Star, the, Starfleet Federation, the Confederation of Planets or whatever it is called. Starfleet. <laughs> it's a fair point. Starfleet Command. Starfleet Command. He goes, this is the predecessor Starfleet Command. So I think maybe we end there with Starfleet Command. I, I don't know. I don't know the formation and we'd have to get some kind of Star Trek expert in. But um, but I think that that's that may be the, the goal or the idea behind all of this is to keep popping up. I mean, we had Seattle and we had NATO, right? So Southeast Asian, right? And then we have NATO and then they're going to do a Gulf States one. And then, and so I don't know, it appears that there's a lot of brouhaha going on with this. And so maybe we're heading towards on the next 50, 25, 50, 100 years to a Starfleet command situation. Maybe we're all going to be wearing pajamas and floating around right. in uh, uh, living rooms with big screen TVs. Right. Led by Space Force. Yeah, yeah. You know, so and communicator pins. I, I, mean, I mean, that's the weird thing is like what it, it's the communicator well, brooch, the brooch style communicator. You know, it just it seems very comfortable. You know, yeah, I, I right. think that it'd be more our, you know, I would be more like aliens. You know, it'd be more sort of gritty our way we do space travel, but I don't really know. But, anyways, I think right, we end with Starfleet Command. But I appreciate you pinging me on this. We can. Maybe talk about autocephaly and the religious aspects of this. The next one. Yeah, we didn't we didn't really touch on the religious aspects. There there are there are some of those, particularly given the history and uh, the history of the Russian Orthodox Church, and then the, uh, the Ukrainian Christian Orthodox Church, Church and the and the Orthodox and then the Catholics. The, yeah. uh, the the I think it's the Roman Orthodox. I think they're calling themselves. I'm not sure. Yeah, sure. So we'll we'll be interested to follow the the thread lines and see how this war. Uh, transition or kind of plays out in the context of the Orthodox church life. Um, yeah. But I mean, for now, get... this is, this has been crossing phase. We're available at crossingphase.com, and uh, there you can find bios and more information, show notes, and all of our social media uh, for Twitter and Facebook.